Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We're certainly happy to have you here. We've got a great guest for you, Elizabeth Evans. She's a podcast producer, economics fanatic, and founder of Elizabeth Evans Co. Her podcast methodology has helped world-renowned artists, best-selling authors, award-winning musicians, and influencers alike all create transformational podcasts full of timeless, quality conversations. And we get to have just that, a quality conversation with Enneagram 5, Elizabeth Evans. So without any further ado, I want to introduce the host of our show, Ian Cron. Elizabeth Evans, Enneagram 5, welcome to Typology. Hello, thank you for having me today, guys. So I want to say this right at the outset. Um, oh, I, I don't think, I'm terrified right now. I've never felt more self-conscious and intimidated prior to an interview than I do right now. No way, that's... No, no, no. I, I really, I, 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 I am. You are arguably the foremost expert on podcast <laughs> in the country. Like you make your living helping like artists and musicians and creatives of all kinds, influencers create podcasts from soup to nuts, like from creation to actually launching them. Right. So I, I told him, I, it is crazy. And I, I told Anthony, I, I feel like I'm playing guitar in front of Eric Clapton right now. <laughs> <laughs> the best compliment anybody's ever given. Oh my oh. goodness. No, no, I love it. No, this is like the most fun thing for me though, is to be on the other side of the mic. Cause I'm usually the one kind of behind the scenes. So I think the intimidation is going two ways here too. Oh, I don't know, because I feel like the whole time you're going to be thinking to yourself, why has he got that background? <laughs> why isn't he wearing makeup? Why, why aren't they doing <laughs> I'll turn off so, my five evaluation brain for the next hour. That would be really helpful because <laughs> Anthony and I are both fours and we will feel the shame coming through Zoom. Coming through the screen. Well, you'll have to let me know if you, th I'm still trying to decide if I'm a four or a six wing. So maybe we'll see kind of what comes up. I can see if I can resonate with your foreignness during this conversation. We shall find <laughs> out. We shall find out. Okay, let's begin this way. Tell us uh, just a little bit about your life journey, like your, your biography, and then how you first learned about the Enneagram. Yes. Okay. Life biography. So I've been in Nashville for the last, gosh, almost four to five years it seems like yesterday, and it also seems like a lifetime. Um, I came here from the D.C. area, and my life looked much different back then. So my background, which is like the most five thing, is in math and statistics and all things numbers and business analysis. And so obviously not what I do now. I mean, sort of. I do a lot of the analyzing of the metrics on podcasting. Um, but, yeah, I moved here, and I always just felt like I had more – creativity to bring but I as a five didn't know what that looked like I was quantitative so I didn't think I was allowed to be creative and so moved here and then um, that's when things just started really kicking off with marketing and podcasting and things just kind of grew and expanded from there so yes moved here from the DC area and now I am in the the creative bunch of Nashville 
Okay, so you left out the part about turning down a job at the CIA. I did leave that out. <laughs> um, gosh, it feels like such a lifetime ago. So in my background, when I say business analysis, I was actually doing business and statistical analysis for IT data centers for the Marine Corps. Of course you were. <laughs> Very niche, like nothing anybody really wants to hear about. I, it's so funny. I always just actually intentionally bet out of my Nashville conversations because you can just see the eyes glaze over and they're like trying to divert me at parties because they're like, we don't want to talk about IT right now, Elizabeth. And so, yeah, I just had this really niche background and skill set and knowledge that I had gained kind of unintentionally. And who knew it was kind of effective? So yeah, that's when I had some connections over at some three-letter agencies, and then I dipped out to Nashville instead. <laughs> well, I'm grateful you're here in Nashville <laughs> and not working in a someplace 100 feet underground as an analyst. You would have been an analyst, right? Yep, exactly. Called it. My dad, <laughs> my dad worked for the CIA. He did. And yes, and when I was in college, uh, I went to a little college in Maine called Bowdoin, little, little okay. school. And uh, the CIA came on campus to recruit. Mm -hmm. And I said to my dad, do you think I ought to apply for a job at the CIA? Because I was a language major, right? So okay. I, I, I spoke fluent Spanish. Yeah. And my father said, nah, you don't, you don't want to do that. You'll, you'll spend your whole life at a desk in a basement reading Argentinian newspapers and watching Argentinian television, sending reports to people you will never meet five stories up. He said, you will hate it. And so I, I decided not to apply to the CIA. So you took his advice. Oh, yeah. yeah. My father didn't give out much good advice, but I think, I think he was spot on for that one. <laughs> what did you end up applying for instead of the CIA? Um, you know, I came out of college directionless, hmm. uh, in part because my parents were not very involved with my life. And so, to be honest, I didn't have a plan. I mm. ended up in ministry first. Um, to be honest, I was just mostly drawn to any place where someone told me they loved me, saw me, and valued my gifts. And whenever I mm. heard that, I was like, I'm sticking around at this place, you know? Yeah. I'm here for that. Yeah, uh, I'm here for that. And, and thankfully, I ended up where I am. So, you know, happy as a lark. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how a lot of us graduate college is at least seemingly directionless, where they just take the path that seems the right one, but it's not what right. they want or desire. So right. very interesting. Well, Goldman Sachs was in the booth next to the CIA and, and everybody was standing in that line back in those days. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't because I probably would be a horrible human being had I worked for the CIA. I mean, for the for Goldman Sachs in the 80s and 90s. Anywho. <laughs> You're um, entirely too unique for that path. That's right. Okay. Now, what did you think or feel when you discovered you were an investigator of the five? I'm going to try to shorten my, I call it my five pause when somebody asks me a question and I just really, really think about it. Um, the first time I realized that I was a five was I, I had, I felt like a download of words. And so sometimes, you know, when you think something that's smarter than you are, you know, it's coming from, for me, like I really felt like God was telling me this. And what I heard was I was hoarding my emotions. And I was like, whoa, what? Like, hold on, back up a second here. 
And I understood like there's definitely material things that I would hold on to for a little too long. I mean, it was probably a couple years ago, Ian, I threw out my math notebooks from high school. Like that's how many wow. things I was holding on to. I don't need my calculus notes anymore. Um, and so the Enneagram can be dangerous for a five because the moment that you feel understood, I just like research binge for like three days, everything that I could. And so it was really that, that thought of I was hoarding my emotions is what started it. Cause I actually Googled hoarding emotions. And the first thing that came up was a blog on the Enneagram five. And I was like, wait, I've heard some Nashville people talking about this and I just totally had dismissed it. And then after, I mean, it was literally just a blog that popped up and I just haven't stopped learning and researching since. Oh my gosh. All right. So tell me what is, what's, what does hoarding your emotions look like or mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't know I was doing it. And so that's when I started to dive into, okay, what, what, what does that mean? Um, you know, my, my friends make fun of me because a lot of times it's just a natural thing. When you exit somewhere with somebody, they say, I love you. I say, okay, thanks. Okay, it's very hard for me. And I always just say like, it's really hard for me to say the L word. And so I realized that I was very curious about people. So I'd ask a lot of questions and they felt very seen, but I realized I wasn't sharing any part about what I was thinking or feeling or going through. Or if I did, I would almost disassociate from those feelings so much, it would become very clinical if I was telling them what I was feeling. It was almost as if it was happening to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was wise. Like I really thought that was really wise of, well, I'm just going to make sure I have enough emotion and energy and resources at the end of the day so I can show up again tomorrow. But I realized this wasn't as wise as it was more so fear-based. So it was definitely like if I felt something, my first instinct was to stop feeling it, feel something else, and then kind of change the topic of conversation. Oh, man. I, so I've had many uh, best friends who are fives, mm -hmm. many. Uh, one, I, I, I still stay very close touch with. He's in Greenwich, Connecticut, a guy named Chris Scarlatta, who I adore as a person. Uh, but I had another friend who, who was a five, and he was a psychotherapist um, and a theologian, mm. PH, PhDs in both. And I thought we had the closest relationship for about two years. And then I realized one day that he knew everything there was to know about me, and I knew virtually nothing about him. Because every time I would ask him a question like, well, tell me about your upbringing or tell me about this or, you know, how did you, he would so masterfully turn the, the attention away from himself and ask me an even more interesting question mm -hmm. about myself. Yeah. And it, it, the deflection was amazing. And, and actually at the end of that two years when I had that epiphany, I felt a little, I don't know what the word is, not betrayed, but fooled. Like, like I'd been fooled, you know, mm -hmm. uh, into thinking this was an intimate relationship, but he had only just actually helped me create a more intimate relationship with myself. <laughs> <laughs> we can bring a lot of awareness. 
Yo. I can understand kind of that like duped feeling because I think I've looked back and I feel like I've duped myself. Mm. I It's never out of, you know, I was really starting to dive into like, why would I do that? Whether it was material resources or emotional resources. And it was never out of like greed because I just wanted everything for myself. It was just a survival instinct. Mm. I didn't know there was another way to be, to open up and to invest and dive deeper until I was like, wait a second, these people don't actually know that much about me. And I thought, well, we're so far into our like friendship or relationship. It's kind of weird to just start like changing the game now. And so that's actually been something really interesting for me is if I step into a new level of awareness, I feel like I'm not able to, I'm not allowed to make a change. So if I mm. wanted to start sharing, it's still that next default. It's like, well, you haven't in the last year and a half. You can't change the game. Now. You're not allowed to change the rules already into your friendship or relationship, which obviously isn't true. But it's just so interesting. These, these thoughts that used to just be default things that are starting to come to awareness that are allowing me to more deeply invest into other people in the scariest of ways. Because mm. before I would share 90% of myself, but it was the last 10% that really carried 90% of the weight. Wow. So how, how would you describe the interior world of a five to a curious friend? Oh, the interior world. Endless questions. So many questions. Um, I just really want to understand everything that's going on around me, um, but very like tiptoe into the situation. Um, very cautious, very thought through. Um, and I really would be completely comfortable staying in my mind and continuing to just think on things and theorize things. Um, it can be hard to find that trigger to put me into action. And that's where starting my business and starting my agency completely was the thing that changed how quickly I can move. Because as a business owner, you don't really have the luxury of sitting on a decision for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Right. Um, so I would say very slow moving, very thought through, but just so many questions there. There's just like so many layers of things that I feel like I have to filter and sift through mm. before even speaking or saying something or making a decision. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, every five we've had on the show and actually – you're not doing it nearly as much as other fives. Hmm. I have learned that when I ask a five a question, they'll look off and they almost look like they're dissociating. And I realized one day that the reason they take so long to, to like, I'll, if you ask me a question, I'll start right in before you finish the sentence answering it. Right. And I realized it's because you have so many files in your head that your search engine is looking taking more time than most people's to find the answer. And your fives are so typically afraid of appearing inadequate or inept mm -hmm. that it's like, I've got to formulate the perfect answer and I'm doing my Google search in my own brain. And so it's going to take me about three or four extra seconds to come up with the answer. You're not doing that as much, but a lot of fives do. You know, it's interesting. I almost said at the beginning of this conversation, I will probably look up a lot. And that just means I'm thinking. 
Yes. Um, so I'm trying kind of intentionally just to like stay very present because you're right. The second I look up, you've lost what my gut instinct would be. Mm. And I'll even give a very like silly example of that, that file processing that you were mentioning. I was, I was on a walk last week with a friend. We were walking her dog. So this was during quarantine. Um, so she was the only person I, well, I guess it was kind of after it had lifted, but still enough you want to stay like six feet away from people. Um, we were coming across and there was another person with their dog walking by. And I thought in my brain, like 15 different scenarios that could happen. Do we stop? Do they stop? Do they move? Do we move? And I start going through every single combination. And I had just stopped right there on the sidewalk. My friend was like, are you okay? Like what's, we're still walking. And I was like, I'm trying to process through how we're going to walk past that other dog. And she was like, we just do it, Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. But I mean, you're right. Like I would process through every single outcome, even in the tiniest of examples of just everyday living of walking past a dog and making sure we don't get too close. Now, I, I want you to know, I am so close as a friend to Anthony. I'm looking in his face right now, and I actually know that he has a question. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I love how you're using your self-awareness to transcend your personality. And I'm just wondering, because you've mentioned this a couple of times, and, and you've, you've addressed it some, but you talked about hoarding, the root of the hoarding being a fear. And I wonder how, as you've become more self-aware of your fiveness, can you tell us more about what that fear is and how do you deal with it? Yes. Okay, so the fear is, I'd say my biggest fear and my biggest desire are the same. Mm. And that is to be the most competent person in the room. Mm. And it's my biggest desire because obviously I want to look strategic and, and smart Um, it's probably my biggest fear because if I am the most competent person in the room, then I'm responsible if there's a mistake that happens. Mm. And I have tried my best my entire life unintentionally to pad myself from any mistakes or missteps. And that would be because I don't want to look anything but competent. Mm. And so I even think in my mind, scarcity is something that is just always something I have to overcome. It's just not going to be enough time, resources, money, friends, love, whatever it might be. So if I could pad myself from these mistakes, I would pad myself from having any stress. And then I would never have that feeling of scarcity. Um, And then I realized that rather than trying to not make mistakes, I kind of redefined what a mistake looked like because it isn't always doing something and wishing you could take it back. Sometimes it's an opportunity that's presented and you don't take it. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it's a very funny thing that was the thing that kind of broke this in me. Um, I feel like I'm one of those people I can probably talk my way in or out of any kind of situation. But the one thing that I have zero natural gifting in is singing. So there was a lot of irony when I moved to Nashville. Um, And when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. I was Mm. working from home full time. And so I just went to the same coffee shop every single day until, I mean, I basically paid for my friends when I first moved here because they became the coffee shop people. 
Um, but one of the people that I met was a vocal coach. So I, he asked me, oh, did you move here to sing? I said, no. I think he took that as a challenge. And he was like, Elizabeth, come in. We'll do a vocal lesson. At the time, I said, sure. That sounds like a fun experience. Until I quickly realized there was no way for me to pad myself from making a mistake. It was just me and my very, very bad vocals in front of this very elite vocal coach. Mm. Still one of the scariest moments of my life. However, there were zero consequences. Whether I did a really good job singing or a really poor job singing, it didn't affect my relationships, my business, anything like that. But I realized in that moment was I was only doing things to avoid embarrassment or to avoid incompetency. But I had intentionally put myself in that scenario and I lived through it. And so now every time I have to make a big quote unquote scary decision and I don't know if I will look competent on the other side, I'd still take a vocal lesson first because it kind of puts myself in a sandbox environment where there's not any consequences, but I also realize I'm going to be okay dancing with the unknown, even if it turns out to be a quote unquote mistake on the other side. Mm. Well, I heard, I hope every five just heard that. That's okay. um, that 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 deep-rooted fear of appearing inadequate, inept, incompetent. That placing placing yourself in situations where that might, in fact, be proven. You, you, you know what I'm saying? In that particular thing you're mm-hmm. doing, uh, is you know, survivable. Yeah. You know, it's gonna it, it's you know whatever. It's gonna be okay. You yeah. Know? You know, it's interesting. One of my best friends who's here in Nashville is a five. He's very successful. He's a musician. A lot of five musicians in the world, by the way. Mm-hmm. Fives with four wings. Uh, but because, oh my gosh, yes. They, they, they have such incredible powers of observation. Uh, well, first of all, they, once they find an instrument, they go, down all the, they go right down the wormhole with it. I mean, they practice 12 hours a day, right? I mean, yep. and they learn everything, you know, sight reading, this thing. Then, and, and with gear... I mean, amps and pedals and I mean, you know, you, you name it. I get it. it. Uh, and and uh, he's a very, and because their powers of observation are so great, they're great songwriters because they can see things that other people don't see and then say them in ways that other people can't say them, you know, and that makes them very, very special. But mm-hmm. I asked him one day, I know him well enough that I could ask this question. And it was in sort of a tender moment with him. And I said, so-and-so, Tell me what your greatest fear is. Mm. And he thought for, he did the five second the five pause thing, thing. And he said, I've always been afraid I'm stupid. Huh. And I went, like, this is a guy, he, he, he didn't ever graduate from, col- from college, right? But he's an autodidact. He's taught himself everything. So, He's, he has read, he, he got a list of all the hundred greatest books that you, from the Brothers Karamazov, you know, to, you know, uh, Les Miserables, you know, to the top 100 books. And he read them all on tour. On tours, he would, he, and you know where he, and do you know where he read them? He would go and hide in one of the luggage bays under the bus. <laughs> the most isolated place he can choose. And, and that's, that was his hiding place. And so, 
But that idea of being stupid or appearing stupid was so frightening for him. And he had never told anybody that Mm. fear. Mm. And I was blown away. How could a guy this smart and successful be afraid of being stupid? You know, that's just amazing. I'm so surprised that he told you that. Well, we're pretty close. And I'm a therapist that I can get a lot out of. (laughs) You're a safe space. You're a safe spot. No, but I so resonate with that because it really hasn't been until the last couple of years where I found more understanding through the Enneagram is I would always default that somebody else knew something I didn't. So therefore they were smarter than me. There was this weird unspoken thing of, well, if they're doing this, something this way, I just must not know enough to know that they're Mm. doing it that way. Even if looking back on a situation, I had complete authority. It's almost like this like unsaid, well, what if I actually am not as smart as I want to be? So therefore the other person probably knows best. And we're just giving up so much power in that situation because we're also giving up our ability to make decisions and to trust our own decision-making. So Mm. that's where I think things can get really dangerous as if our fear of looking stupid or not being smart enough starts to overtake us. We lose all power to trust our own decision-making and that's where things can get really underwater. Um, So yeah, I totally resonate with what your five friends said. So I just said I was a therapist. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. Okay. Uh, Are you, or have you ever been in therapy? Oh, I have been in more therapy than I probably should ever tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm a huge, everybody needs, whether you're going through a crisis or whether you're fine, everybody needs to be in therapy. I just, I just started with a new counselor just this week. So I'm like fresh with all my emotions. So we had like a pre-call and I was like, hey girl, not like in crisis mode, just, just need a quick tune up nothing's like no crisis she's like oh that's great this is perfect time to come to therapy 10 minutes into the call i'm like sobbing i was like i'm sorry i guess i lied to you i didn't know i had all these emotions going on so it's just so funny when you meet somebody that is a safe space for you Hmm. what starts to unravel much more quickly than i anticipated and you know most of the time fives do not like it when emotions arise unanticipated like they don't, oh, no. they're like, I, oh, mm, not a good feeling. Did you I feel wanted, weird after that? Yeah. Cause when I'll be crying, like my face still kind of stays the same. Cause I don't want to like completely mm. let into it. And so I have like big alligator tears. So it, like it's, it looks very dramatic, but my face is still like very normal. And she's like, what are you feeling? And I'm like, I don't know. I have to think about it first. I don't know what I'm feeling first. Let me think. Yeah. You have to think your way to your feelings. I feel my way to everything, including the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's unbelievable. (laughs) I feel everything. It's just amazing. I wish I could do that. Well, I wish I could do quantitative statistics. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody guys, I wish I could do my checkbook. I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, But uh, well, okay. So, can I just I want to just tap into that just a little bit more. Yeah. Through the thinking through the lens of the Enneagram, mm-hmm. you've been to more therapy, you said more therapists than ever. What theme continues to run? What what's the thread that runs through the whole of all your visits to these different therapists that 
at this moment has is either close to resolution or remains unresolved for you? I had a gut feeling and then I thought I'm going to stop and think about it for a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would tell you as a therapist, go with the gut feeling, but do as you please. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that keeps bringing me back one outside of just it, it feels good to actually tell somebody what I'm feeling. Cause I obviously don't do that enough as a five. Um, I think it's that I have a hard time. I will say I'm very, I can be very indecisive and that's something that holds me back a lot. And I finally realized it was rooted in fear. And so I think that's what kept going. I would always kind of be like teetering in and out of a situation, um, relationship, like a, whether what was in high school, what I was going to major in, like I'll say quote unquote big decisions but it would keep me in a limbo for way too long because I just didn't trust myself to make a decision. Mm. Um, so I'd say that's always kind of been the common theme for me because I've made big life jumps moving to Nashville, not knowing anybody. And people would say, Elizabeth, you're so brave. But I would say, no, that was a brave decision. I'm not actually brave. Or they'd say you're smart. But I'd be like, oh, you don't actually know me. I'm not that smart. And so I think between being extremely indecisive to the point where it's keeping me in such limbo and so stagnant, but also something new that I'm starting to uncover is I, I think one of my biggest fears is also a withdrawal of love, mm. but I'm never actually getting, I wasn't up until this point, getting close enough with people to let them in so they could mm. never withdraw because they were never there in the first place in my internal emotional state at least wow well thank you mm-hmm. thank you as a five i know it, it you have to burn more calories to answer a question like that than <laughs> i do uh and so i just appreciate your vulnerability and and sharing that because i'm sure it resonates with a, with a lot of fives you know mm-hmm. um and we all want to be seen and understood and know we're not alone so thank you for making people feel that way um, so we're doing right now a YouTube series on the Enneagram and business team building. And uh, so I want to talk about the intersection right now of your fiveness and your professional life. Is that okay? Yes. Let's do All it. Right. So how, how have you integrated the Enneagram and your gifts as a five into building your business? Yes. So I would say as a five, I'm extremely detail oriented but it's hard for me to not always like micromanage, I'll say, and nobody likes to be micromanaged. Um, So really beginning to delegate to team members. Um, And I think with my fiveness, one of my superpowers is being able to kind of predict what's going to happen next because I'm so aware, fine tune, small sensitivities and differences. Um, I just feel like it's almost this, I don't know how to explain, like a third dimension that I just kind of didn't realize was the superpower that I had. And so being able to anticipate what needs to come next, I think is probably my biggest superpower as a five in my business. Um, And then also understanding people, what motivates them and what needs to maybe like be just changed a little bit. I'll give an Mm. example of my head of communications is a three. And I kept saying that I appreciated her 
But I think what would have helped all of those times was if I said, if I complimented her and told her what a good job she was doing versus showing appreciation. Hmm. Um, So I think between being a five and kind of having that vision of what's going to happen next and holding that leadership, also being able to delegate and release and let people just run with their powers um, and also being able to affirm and motivate based on what they truly want to hear pertaining to their numbers as well. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for a five. You know, one of the things that in the workplace as I've done some consulting is uh, people get frustrated with fives because everything's on need to know basis and they don't share. So they'll hold information in that prevents the team from knowing what to do next. And they're like, you've got to tell us everything. They're all, no, you only need to know the next thing, you know, instead of the big thing. Totally. Uh, yeah. It, it can drive people a little crazy, right? I think we comp- as far as I say, we compartmentalize so many things that it is hard to keep communication going. Cause it's like, okay, well this is over here and this is point a, but this is point B. And a lot of times I just assume that people know what's going on up in my brain. So communicating that out to the team so that the left hand is talking to the right hand and we're moving forward is something I have to constantly be aware of because right. I'll just put something over in the box and be like, Oh, I thought about it. So it's done. That's not how the real world works. No, not recently. <laughs> no. Okay, so now I know, I know that you're passionate about storytelling. Yeah. And I'm just curious to know where that came from. Also a good question. So I've always loved reading. As Even as a, like a young, young girl, uh, my mom would ask me if I wanted to have friends over. And I'd say, no, they might not want to do what I want to do. And then I would go upstairs and read my book. So it was the most five of fives, even when I was younger. Um, but it really felt like the the characters in the books through those stories then became my friends. Like the my books were my friends growing up. Um, and so then as I started to step more into to my story and the power of sharing my story, I realized that a lot of people were not speaking out theirs one, because they were embarrassed, or two, they just didn't know how. Hmm. And so when I first began stepping into storytelling and podcasting, the biggest thing that I heard people saying that was hindering them from telling their story at first was like, my story's too messy. It doesn't deserve to be told. And then recently, it's been a little bit more different. It's people have been saying, I haven't, I haven't overcome enough. Like My story isn't hard enough, so I don't deserve a platform to tell it. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic because they're polar opposites, but the end result was still people weren't, they weren't telling their stories. And so if we continue to feel isolated, which I as a five can do intentionally, but if we remain isolated in our stories, there's no connection or unity on the other side. And so I think I just realized like all of these people are not telling their really amazing stories that could turn into books that would lead the next generation of young girls to read. That's when I was like, okay, this is something I am passionate about enough. I think that I have enough awareness to help people really tell their stories impactfully so that there's purpose in their pain, but there's also impact for the person that's listening. You know, I'm thinking right now about, and and I'm going to quote her, uh, and I I know I'm going to get it wrong, but you'll get the point. And I'm sure you've heard it, but I want everyone else to hear it. Um, 
Maya Angelou had that, that great quote that's so beautiful. She says, there is no greater burden to carry than an untold story. No, there is no greater agony. Agony. Than to bear the burden of an untold story. Mm. And that's just what came up for me as you were, you were saying that, you know. I've, I tell people, I've written a memoir before, and I, I tell people, anybody who's had a childhood can write a memoir. You, you don't need a. You don't need anything interesting. Your whole childhood was more interesting than you can imagine. You know, you just have to learn how to tell it. You know, how did that feel going through the process for you? Writing a memoir. Yes. Well, um, it actually was compared to writing the road back to you. It was very sure. easy. Wow. Uh, writing a novel was much easier for me than writing the road back to you. Hmm. Um. I found straight nonfiction to be unbearably linear. Hmm. Uh, it, it, whereas the rest, this other stuff, it was more like painting and I, and, and writing, not writing nonfiction felt like doing math, um, yeah. which as I've told you, I'm, I'm not very good at. Right. Uh, emotionally while I was doing it, I had some moments where I was moved, but not as many as you think. I'd been through a lot of therapy. I'd already worked through a lot of that stuff. You should never write a memoir unless you have reached a resolution, you know? Um, but that was a number of years ago. <clears throat> and uh, periodically I go back and I'll read a, a chapter, not a chapter, even a paragraph. I just happen to see it on a shelf. I flip through pages and I'll read something in a, brings me to tears now mm. but not when i was writing it not wasn't that big a deal i think that's so interesting that's what yes. i hear from a lot of songwriters too in the mm. moment when they're writing a song it's not spectacularly like a, a breakthrough but listening to it back is when it starts to kind of break down the walls of they created it and it's still impacting them emotionally right yeah so i love this intersection of storytelling and your career as a podcast goddess um <laughs> and helping people discover their story find its sacredness its meaning giving them the courage to tell it in in the face of their insecurities about it yeah. um, and then giving them the very practical tools right uh i'm sure from for which microphone to buy what you know what I mean? Like all those pieces that I'm sure fives love researching microphones, you know? Yes. Um, so, so I just want to ask you just a few last questions. Number one is, because <clears throat> I ask it of everybody, what is one of your favorite podcasts? Oh, I don't know if you've heard of the Typology podcast. Oh, um, actually, continue. <laughs> I, was, I was just interviewed yesterday, and that actually was my answer. But if I had to go with... It was of, not. It was. I will let you hear wow. it when it comes out. But that was absolutely my answer. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Because we were talking about which podcasts kind of have like almost like this intrinsic intrigue that are like very revealing in every episode. And I was like, of course, typology. Oh, oh, thank you. That actually oh, cool. blows my brain. Oh, of course. Maybe yeah. you should have started out with that. Yeah. Um, no, I'm glad you didn't because I would have been thinking about it. I wouldn't have had any <laughs> follow-up questions. <laughs> I'd have been going. Go home after that. That was it. Yeah, really? Um, I would say I work on so much audio 
I mean, I listen to a lot of people talking a lot of the time. So I really only listen to podcasts that don't have anything to do with my realm of kind of business educational lifestyle. Um, so I eat up like the true crime, all of those types of podcasts, mm. crime junkies, all the parkour media, kind of whatever's in um, their network. So true crime is definitely where I'm right now. Mm -hmm. But that's probably just because I listen to, to people talk all day long. So I want to be told a story if I'm not working. Hmm. Wow. Well, um, so here's a question that we might edit. Okay. But I, I probably won't because I don't really care. But uh, I want to remember, we can't, Anthony and I can't afford consulting. Uh, so, so while you're here... <laughs> What advice would you give to Anthony and I to improve typology and remember to be kind or even lie because we're very sensitive fours? <laughs> well, so what piece of advice now, would you give, <laughs> if any, if any? Yeah, five years ago, I it probably would have hurt everybody's feelings if I had come up with something. I was a very direct five. Um, what would I change? I'm trying to think because I really do try to only be a consumer when I listen to podcasts and not an evaluator. Ooh, um, that's hard. It's very hard, but I do try to do that. I will say a compliment I will start out with is I think you more than most other podcasters phrase your questions really well. Mm. A lot mm. of times people will ask broad questions which I have found then result to broad answers. But the mm. more specific the question, the more specific the story, then you can raise it to a higher level point um, that will resonate with the listeners. I don't know. I mean, your length, it's not too long. You guys break it up into two episodes sometimes. You ask specific questions. Um, I really can't think of anything off the top of my head that I would absolutely I'm so change. glad. <laughs> but feel free to email me. Um, you know, I will. Feedback's like my favorite thing to do. But I mean, I really, I really do so much enjoy sitting down and listening to your shows so much mm -hmm. that maybe I'll do an audio feedback when I have my, my five podcast brain on. Well, <clears throat> I'm intoxicated right now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I haven't had a, I haven't had a drink in thirty years, so thank you. <laughs> and I'm very short on compliments, typically being a five. So yes, you have my you met my one quota for the week. You guys got my one compliment that I give. Oh, I'm really really uh, glad to be the recipient thereof. <laughs> um, okay, so what projects are are you working on right now, and how do people find out more about you and, and what you're up to, your services, everything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at elizabethevans.co. Website is the same. Try to keep things nice and simple. Um, so something I'm actually going to be rolling out, this might be the first time I'm saying it anywhere, um, is I'm going to start like a podcast. I'll call it a society just for people that have a show. They just want to meet with other people. They want cool. feedback from me. Mm. So we'll have biweekly masterclasses, how to be a better interviewer, how to hold solo episodes. And so I'm going to be opening up that wait list here shortly. Um, I do have a podcast mastermind. And then you probably, maybe you can find some shows that I've produced now and in the past too. But as far as things that people can dive into, that podcast society is definitely going to be. That's going to crush. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that is, th that could not be more perfectly timed. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you are going to crush it. Wow. Yeah, Thank because you. I think, no, no, because I'm pretty good at spotting like, okay, there are six lanes. There's a lot of traffic. Don't bother. Too many people are doing it. Yeah. But that looks like a six lane highway with no cars on it. So you, you, you're, you're going to be the first of many people who figure out how to do this. And they're going to be chasing after you in about a year because they're going to realize, oh, my gosh, what a market. Because oh, so you. many people want that kind of advice. I mean, but people know. just want to know they're doing it right. And there's yeah. no real standard out there. So if there oh. are no rules in podcasting, I'll make the rules. I'll break them later, but I'll make them again. Yeah. Oh, I love man. that. I'm going to sign up. Anthony, you're going to sign up and tell me everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm you in. can be a teacher on there too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Elizabeth, this has been really like, like one of those really joyful, smooth, easy, enlightening conversations you know mm-hmm. that you know as you know in podcasting sometimes you 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 have a show and you it's like pulling teeth you know it, it's just you're you are burning calories to make this thing work and you were uh, and are a delightful conversationalist mm-hmm. very thoughtful and uh you know, and you got a cool microphone. So everything worked. <laughs> Nothing else. We've got the good mic. Thank you so much for your words. Seriously, that really that really means a lot. Obviously, words mean a lot to me. So that's something that I will treasure. So thank you for being so gracious Great. with that. You bet. Well, Typology listeners, we love you. We love that you're part of our, our family. And uh, please remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Until next time, be well.